Okay, if you got a Bible, go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in chapters 1 through 4 today. And uh, I want to say a couple of things as we dive into this. For the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about feminine strength that the world needs. And we're going to be walking through different stories in Scripture about women of various backgrounds and cultures and stages of life that were captured by the grace of God in Jesus and who actually used their time of life to bring life and beauty to the world that they lived in. And I want to kind of like point out a couple of things as we dive into this. I want to point out, first of all, that when I look into my own soul, like when I ponder my own soul, my own desires, the parts about me that are deep, not just sort of cursory thoughts, but when I try to like look inside my soul, sometimes I'm baffled about me, right? Like I find my own soul mysterious at times and there's things about me that are a mystery. Like I feel the tension of Romans 7 where the apostle Paul is talking about wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin. And then Romans 8, he breaks out into worship and remembers the gospel. So I feel like just as it relates to me as a human being and as a man, sometimes I'm baffled and perplexed. Uh, In addition to that, as a pastor that's had a heart and a calling to train and equip men and wrestle through what does the gospel actually say about manliness and what it means to be not a cultural version of a man, but a biblical version of a man. Uh, I've been on that journey for over 20 years, discipling guys, training guys. And sometimes I look at my own gender and I'm baffled. Like, I don't think I understand all of what it means to be a man in the image of God or the mysteries of masculinity. Now, I'm saying all that to say how much more so do I feel the mysterious glory of what it means to be a woman? Because I'm not speaking from personal experience and I'm looking at something that's mysterious and I'm looking at something that's really holy and really weighty and really deep. And so as we approach this topic today and as we kind of start our series by diving into a theology of womanhood, I just want to say it's like it's with fear and trembling that we're doing this. And in fact, in some ways, I feel a bit like I felt this summer when I got to do a a DIY dive trip with some buddies in North Carolina. Let me explain what I mean by that. I love scuba diving. I love spearfishing. I especially love scuba diving and spearfishing in places that don't feel safe. Like, I I don't necessarily want to go do a resort dive. I want to go do a dive that's wild and adventurous and crazy. And this summer, I got to do kind of a a a once-in-a-lifetime awesome dive with a group of friends in North Carolina where we literally, we we got into a 21-foot skiff And you don't have to know boats to know that that's a really small boat to take out into the ocean, like 21-foot skiff. You you see people catching bass in that size boat in Lake Arcadia. And we got into this 21-foot skiff on an early morning day, set out into the Atlantic, and and there was a gray gray sky, there was rain, and there was a six-foot swell coming in. So that's a pretty big swell for a 21-foot skiff. And we had my buddy Donnie Griggs, who's the pastor of a church in North Carolina, who's an experienced uh, boat driver and a waterman. And then we have my good buddy, Steve Huber, who's a pastor in North Carolina. And then we have my daughter, Olivia, who has salt water in her veins. And, and uh, Steve's son, Lucas, was with us. And so we had that little group of people. We got into a 21-foot skiff, and our goal was to go and find this offshore shipwreck 
right? And, and to dive the shipwreck. And so we're in this tiny boat and the sky is gray and there's a six foot swell and, and we're setting out into sea to go 14 miles off the coast in this itty bitty boat. And I'm just telling you, like, you feel how small you are in that moment, right? You feel how tiny you are. And yet the reward of that trip was that we got to experience things that were deep and beautiful and rich that you can't experience if you just go visit SeaWorld. Now, here's why I'm telling that. Um, It's not just like hubris or ignorance that led me to get in that boat with my daughter who I love, who I don't want to have die in a wreck in the middle of the ocean. Like, here's some factors that led towards that being a wise risk. Um, First of all, we got in a boat with a really good captain. Like my buddy Donnie is experienced. He's been in the water of North Carolina his whole life. Like the dude was literally born in a boat. His dress code is flip-flops and shorts, no matter what. Like he officiates weddings and flip-flops. It's a factor. And, and he knows what he's doing, right? And in addition to that, like we had, we had a decent boat. It was a small boat, but it was a boat that didn't have any holes in it, which is a factor. And we had GPS, which is like the modern, modern day um, ability to cheat and not really know charts or maps. And so like we, we knew we were going because of GPS. We had a decent boat. We had a decent captain. And then we had a team of people that had enough experience to know how to get each other's backs and protect each other. Now I'm saying that because we're embarking on a six-week study of feminine strength that the world needs, and it feels a little bit scary. It feels a little bit mysterious. It feels a little bit risky. Like, this is not a sermon series that's going to be easy to preach. It's probably not a sermon series that's going to be particularly easy to hear. Um, This is not a series where we got together and said, what's the easy thing that we could do to just fill up chairs? There's a weightiness to this. There's mystery to this. But here's what's fascinating. First of all, we got a really great boat, And that's a picture of the church of Jesus. For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has been like a ship in the midst of the sea of culture that's called to not retreat from culture, but go into culture with the truth of the gospel. And I'll just tell you, like, we have a seaworthy vessel named, named the church. And in addition to that, we've got a fantastic captain that's at the helm of this trip as we dive into the mysteries of womanhood. And and thank God that captain's not me, so you could breathe deeply. The captain is Jesus. He's the head of the church. He's the senior leader. He's the pastor of the church. He's the one that invented maleness and femaleness. And this is great news. We actually do have GPS. We've got coordinates to find where we're going. And the GPS that we have is not culture that's always changing. The GPS we have is the timeless living word of God that's sufficient and it's true and it's helpful. And we have each other to get each other's backs as this raises up areas of brokenness and fear and anger and insecurity. We actually get to come along each side, each other and love each other. So with that in mind, let me just say, the motivation for this is quite simple. It's just love. It's love, and it's not the real but tiny love I have for the ladies in our church or my life. Like, I really do love my wife. I really do love my daughter. I really do love my sisters in this church, but my love is tiny compared to the love of Father God for his daughters. So the motivation is not to just try to come up with something that we need to talk about. The motivation is meeting the ladies of our church with the timeless truth of God's word and how the power of the gospel can do something breathtaking with the gift of femininity. And that's something that the world really needs. And so we are on holy ground because we're talking about people. And we're on holy ground because we're talking about the God that made people. And our desires we do this 
is to step out in faith and wrestle through the topic of feminine strength because we want to love and serve you ladies well. We want you to be who Jesus has called you to be. We want you to be empowered to walk out the truth of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want those ladies that are part of our church that don't know Jesus to see just how much he values them and what he wants to do in their lives. And we want to serve the men of our church because instead of seeing women through the lens of culture, we want you to see them through the lens of God's grace and God's creation, which will change the way that you value, honor, and speak to the women in your life, right? Like if you want to be a good brother, which is what every Christian man is to every Christian woman, if you want to be a good husband, if God's given you a wife, or if he might someday give you a wife, or if you want to be a good dad to daughters, it's really important that you're not trite about the mystery of femininity, but that you dig into it in light of scripture so that you can be the kind of man that doesn't objectify and doesn't relegate the women in his life as if God created them to just gratify you or make your life easy or meet your needs. Like if you're really gonna love and serve the women of our church and of our city, we've gotta know what God says about what it is to be a woman. So with that in mind, I wanna dive in by today taking just a second and giving you a snapshot of why it might be difficult to talk about womanhood. And then I wanna go back to the very beginning and I wanna talk about God's understanding of what it is to be a woman. So here's why it might be difficult in this cultural moment to talk about femininity. Um, Culture is way more like a stew on Sunday night made out of all the leftovers of the week than it is like the fossil record. And here's what I mean. Um, Think fossil record where you have clear, I mean, I know there's a little bit of blur, but you basically have layers where there's a beginning and an end of different eras, right? So it starts here and it ends here. It starts here and it ends here. And you can look at those different layers and see what was happening on the earth in those different moments. Well, culture's not like that. Culture's a lot more like making gumbo or making stew where different ideas and beliefs all get thrown in and they have starting moments, but then they still kind of sit in the pot and affect the flavor of the rest of the stew. So just because it's been thousands of years since Plato was alive, doesn't mean that Plato's influence on how we look at the spirit and the body, it doesn't mean that that influence has gone away. In fact, Plato's speaking to you all the time in our culture. So here's what I mean by that. Here's why it might be difficult to really wrestle with what it is to be a woman. Let, Let me give you a few moments in culture in recent history. And each of these moments in culture, except for the last one, each of these moments in culture is a mixture of both good things and bad things. So I wanna say that up front. Um, here, here are three moments I want to mention that are all in the stew that we're trying to make sense of as it relates to gender. The first is what we'll just call 1950s domesticity, right? It was this moment kind of post-World War II where there was a lot more abundance in America and all of a sudden the ideal for women became you're going to find your identity and your joy and your depth and your significance as it relates to your roles and responsibilities in the home. And you had this massive advance in technology that was making chores around the house easier. And every snapshot you see of American 1950s Americana or the good life or the dream of what it is to be a woman basically said, if you want to have the good life, you make the good life in your home and you define it by your roles and your relationships, and your chores around the house, okay? Here's what that led to. That led to 
what we'll just call 1960s to 1980s second wave feminism. And, and again, there's a mix of good and bad in all these. Like the feminist movement was needed because of the vacuum that was created in bad treatment of women, sinful treatment of women, unjust treatment of women. So there needed to be a correction that actually addressed the fact that we weren't treating women as equal image bearers of the most high God. But that second wave feminist movement, track with me, it basically did the exact same thing that 1950s America did by reducing women to their roles, relationships, and responsibilities. So here's what it said. It said, hey, uh, you're not going to find your identity or your satisfaction in the home. You're going to find your identity and satisfaction as it relates to independence from men and in your ability to have a full life outside the home. So here's where your joy is going to be. Here's the good life now. It's the level of education you have. It's your income potential. It's your independence. Now, you add one more layer to that or one more ingredient, and that's what we'll just call the pornification of our culture. And this is the one ingredient that has no positive benefits. And what's happened with the pornification of our culture is that porn's gone mainstream, And the way that we look at each other and sexuality has been so adjusted and tweaked by the way that we use pornography and by the way that we look at sexuality that here's what you have right now. You have the message of 1950s America, life and identity and depth and meaning is found in roles and relationships as it relates to motherhood and marriage in the home. You have second wave feminism that says, identity and joy is rooted and grounded in what you do outside the home. And then you have the pornification of America that has a really powerful message to both men and women that's all about external appearance. And here's what's fascinating about all those. Every single one of them is about what a woman is supposed to look like or what a woman is supposed to do. And every single one of those is a version of the good life that's all based on all the stuff that's external to her as it relates to her roles, her relationships, or her tasks. Now, track with me, man. Like, the Bible has a lot to say about roles and relationships and using your gifts and what it means to navigate the external complexities of life and family and at work and in culture. But here's what's tragic. All of those movements in the stew that we're eating from as it relates to what it is to be a woman, all of those movements at the end of the day fall short of really getting to the heart of what it means to have an identity in God as a woman. They're not about the core essence of who you are. In her fantastic book that I think every person in our church should read called Made for More, Hannah Anderson writes this. She writes, while there were serious societal paradigms that needed to be challenged coming out of 1950s America, second wave feminism no more successfully answered the underlying question of personal identity than the previous generation had. Instead of defining themselves by their homes and family, women were now compelled to define themselves by their education, professional accomplishments, and independence from men. While the domesticity of the 1950s may have truncated identity at one respect, subsequent feminist thought simply lofted off in another. Neither fully addressed all that it means to be a woman, all that it means to be a human." And what we're going to see today is we go back to the beginning, to God's dream for womanhood and for masculinity. What we're going to see is that at the very essence, the very heart, at the very core of what it means to live the good life is not trying to find who you are in all the outside stuff that you do. It's actually being rightly aligned with what God created you to be through grace. 
So take your Bible. We're going to go Genesis chapter one through Genesis chapter four. I'm going to go really fast on the first five of these, and we're going to camp out on the last two. So what does it mean to actually be a woman? Let's build a theology of womanhood together that actually is practical and helpful. The first thing I want you to see is that woman is an image bearer of God. Woman is an image bearer of God. Genesis chapter one, verse 26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So when he says, let us make man, he's using man there in the generic sense of mankind. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him male and female He created them. Here's what's fascinating. Before Eve does anything, what we see is by the very nature of her creation, her identity is first and foremost rooted and grounded in being an immortal image bearer of the most high God. And what's fascinating in this text, what's so beautiful in this text is that both men and women fully bear the image of God with dignity, but neither men nor women can fully represent the image of God alone. So here's what's breathtaking. God in his wisdom and God in his splendor wants to reveal himself to creation. He wants to show off his beauty. So he creates the earth as a temple, if you will. And that temple is full of all kinds of beautiful things that he says are good. It's got the moon and the stars. It's got the sun. It's got oceans and land masses and animals and creeping things. And at the end of that creation, after he's built this beautiful temple to fill with his glory, what does he do? Well, he makes man and he makes women. He makes man and woman in his image to reflect his goodness and reflect his glory into this world. N.T. Wright, who's a pretty amazing scholar, I don't agree with everything that he's written, but he's got some great thoughts on creation. He talks about how in almost every ancient culture, a temple would be built to honor a God or deity. And after the temple was constructed, the last thing that would be done would be the implanting of the image of that deity into the temple. And the idea was this temple is a house for people together and the image of that deity would be the means through which that deity would bring his life and his power to his worshipers in the temple. What we have in creation is such a more beautiful, more full picture of what they're trying to get at. It's that this whole world is God's temple and he's above it, but he's also in it and he's moving And the way that he wants to communicate his life and his beauty is by making man who reflects his glory in unique ways and woman who reflects his glory in unique ways and man and woman together who in union reflect his glory in even more unique ways. So the first thing I would say to you ladies is like, before you do anything, before you figure out your career or your spouse or have kids or choose not to have kids, before you do anything, before anything happens to you that the world says, well, that gives you value or that takes away your value, the first thing I want you to see is that a biblical anthropology, like a biblical view of humanity says you actually need to recognize that you have more than just equality with men, Like that term equality is true. Men and women are equal in creation and they're equal in redemption, but it also kind of falls short of what God's actually communicating. Like like you can have 
five apples here and five apples here and say that's equal, and that's true. But what God's communicating is something much more than just numeric value. He's communicating infinite worth in the creation of men and women. Infinite value, infinite dignity, infinite beauty. Why? Because he created us to reflect him, men and women in his image. Secondly, not only is woman in her very essence an image bearer of God, but secondly, woman is created to be a relational being, a relational being. Now, we're focusing on women here. It's equally true that men are created to be relational beings, like the old stereotypical deal that women are relational, men aren't. Women are emotional, men aren't. That's bunk. Both men and women are relational beings that have emotions. But here's what I want you to see. At the very core of what it means to be a woman is to be an image bearer of God who was made for a depth of communion with both God and with men. And and I mean that men in terms of humankind, humankind. Look at this together. She was first of all made for communion with God. Look at verse 28. It says, and God blessed them. Now, certainly he blessed them with a lot of great stuff outside of himself. He created food for them to enjoy. He created creation for them to look at and and to remember his goodness and his glory. He created the capacity for pleasure, ears that can hear music and skin that can feel touch and all that's wonderful and from God. But when it says here that he blessed them, that's much more than just the stuff he made for them. That's saying he actually gives them himself. What's the ultimate blessing that God gives Eve? It's that she is a relational being who has the capacity to know and walk with God as the fountain of all delight and pleasure. She was made to enjoy him. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said human beings were made to run on God like cars are made to run on gasoline. God blesses her with the capacity to know the living God and to walk with the living God who would be the source of her delight and joy. In addition to that, he clothes them with glory. Like they're naked and unashamed. Why? Because they're just radiating the beauty and splendor of God in creation. And she's also made for relationship with people. Uh, Here's what it says in verse 18 of chapter two. Chapter one is one camera angles view of creation. Chapter two is another camera angles view of creation. Both are true. Both have a lot of symbolism and both are telling us about God and ourselves. Chapter two, verse 18 says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Now it's fascinating that in creation, it's like a symphony that God's conducting and he's conducting the symphony and it's rising and becoming more and more beautiful and more and more powerful with every passing day. And everything that he's making with this symphony is good. He says that the sun is good and the stars are good and oceans are good and animals are good. And all the things that he's made the oceans teeming with life and the land with creeping animals, it's all what? It's good. And then we get to the first thing that's not good. It's not good for a relational image bearer of the most high God to be in isolation from other people. See, here's what's fascinating. In the beginning, it says, God says, let us make man in our image. This is the first hint at the kind of God that we're loving and worshiping that he's not a lonely, solitary God. He's one God who's eternally existed in three persons. So he says, let us make man in our image. Part of that is the capacity for men and women to engage in depth of relationship that points to the communal nature of God. So 
before anything else happens in this text, before her identity in terms of being as a human flows out into doing as a human, before any of that happens, I just want to stop here, camp out, and say, look, we have a hard time just being people, let alone figuring out what it means to be a man or a woman. And at the very essence of being a human being is that men and women reflect God's image and glory and have value and dignity and worth. And men and women were created not to be isolated from God, but to walk with him in fellowship and in enjoyment and to not be isolated from one another, but to walk with each other in a depth of communion and connection. Now, what happens next is interesting. Like, so that's the heart of it. She's an image bearer of God. She's a relational being that's made to know and love God and know and love other people. And that flows into her doing. Let me give you a few things. Number three, she is called to be a co-ruler with Adam. So woman is called to be a co-ruler with Adam. Look at Genesis 1 verse 28. And God blessed them, male and female. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, here's what's happening. God creates this temple and then he puts his image in the temple, man and woman. And the idea is through their creative labor, which includes childbearing, but it's so much more than that. Through their lives of creativity, they're actually going to, in some ways, reflect God's creative ability, and they're going to fill up the world with goodness, beauty, and splendor that points to who God is. They were called to build just society and beautiful family and culture and art and all kinds of things that would point back to just how sufficiently glorious God is in himself. And what's breathtaking about this is that every other creation mythology that exists among the pagan peoples basically puts God and man in one category and women and creation in another. Almost every creation account has God creates somehow, and it's usually out of some struggle with evil, not just the overflowing of God's goodness. God creates and you have God and then man and man's job is to rule over women and cattle and treasure and fields. And what's breathtaking about the Genesis account is that you have a whole different, you have a whole different flow of life in creation. You have God creating everything out of nothing and God's in a category all by himself. He's the sovereign, he's the Lord. And then as a team, you have man and woman, Adam and Eve, who under God's authority are supposed to bring his goodness into every level of creation. They're to create together, they're to work together. Sometimes I think really good fiction helps us get a grid for reality. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is how he closes that story. He says, These two kings and queens, these two kings and queens governed Narnia well, and long and happy was their reign. They made good laws and they kept the peace and they saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down and generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. So ladies, let me just say to you, um, first of all, who are you? What's your identity? Well, you were created to be an immortal image bearer of the most high God with value and dignity and worth that would point to how splendid God is in ways that men don't by themselves. And 
You were created to live in a depth of relationship with God in which you would actually be satisfied in him and you would be turned to the worship of him as you enjoyed the things he made. And a depth of relationship with other human beings in which you could actually share life and be free to be yourself in God. And that flows into what you're supposed to do in the world. You were called to take dominion over creation and create beauty that honors the nature of God alongside Adam the man. Now, this is where it starts to get more specific. Let me give you the fourth thing it says. In addition to being a co-ruler with Adam, woman is also a helpmate, a helpmate. Take your Bible, go to Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now let's just pause here and just diagnose how unflattering and pejorative that term feels to most people in the room. Like, like this is what you're saying I am? I'm a helper fit for him? That sounds like a busboy or a personal assistant or like worst case scenario, that's like the secretaries in the show Mad Men that just bring brown liquor and light cigarettes and look attractive. Like this is my calling to be a helper? That doesn't sound very glorious and amazing. Well, let, let me say a couple of things about that. That word helper in the Hebrew actually means equal and corresponding to him. The idea is that she is going to be one who supplies strength where strength is lacking. She's going to be one that actually is going to complement his weaknesses with her unique strengths and be complemented in her weaknesses by his unique strengths in ways that would actually magnify the beauty and splendor of God. In fact, that word helper, this is crazy. That word helper there is used 21 times in the, New, in the Old Testament, 21 times. Two times it refers to woman, both in the beginning of Genesis. The other 19 times, do you know who it refers to? It refers to the living God of Israel who helps and who intervenes and who comes through and who shows up. It's a beautiful thing for God to say that it's not good for man to be alone. I'm gonna make this help meet, this one who's gonna be equal and corresponding to, who's gonna be distinct but equal in value, dignity, and worth, who's gonna cover him in areas of weakness and he's gonna receive strength in her areas of weakness and together they're gonna better image God and better subdue creation. Now look at verse 21, chapter 2, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. So this helpmate, is communicated, it's her, her, her role and her responsibility, the stuff that she does relationally is communicated in a way where God wants to connect that to the essence of who she is and her identity. Here's what I mean. There's a reason that God uses this symbol, this picture of the rib. Like when you think of the rib, here's what God is saying. I'm gonna take her from the same substance as the man. This is going to be a picture of their equal value, their equal humanity, the way that they both have dignity and worth. Taking her from the rib is God communicating that their essence is the same, though they have unique distinction in their gender. 
In addition, that rib is a metaphor for their relationship. So here's how it works. Old Testament and New Testament, things go totally wrong with the fall. We're gonna get to that in a minute. But Old Testament and New Testament, there's an essence to masculinity that can be described as guarding and protecting. Now, that doesn't mean that women never guard and protect, right? Like, um, just mess with, a, mess with a grizzly bear's cubs, and you're going to find that females are able to guard and protect, correct? But there's something about the masculine essence that is pictured by the arm that goes over the rib. Like, I, I spent about seven or eight years boxing, and I was never very good at it, And one of the hardest things for me was just getting my shoulders used to the fact that you had to keep your elbows tucked in your stance. And the reason you had to keep your elbows tucked is because when you get punched in the body, you want to absorb that blow in your arm. You don't want to absorb that blow in your rib. Well, it's a picture of masculine essence. It's like we we are called to be guardians and protectors, not misogynistic oppressors. We're called to be those that lay down our lives for the ladies in our lives. And that picture of the rib is also a picture of her because track with me, just as the arm protects the rib, the rib also protects the most vulnerable and important parts of what's happening inside of the man. It's your rib. Think about it. It's your rib that protects your liver and your heart and your lungs. Without your rib cage, you can't even breathe. So man has this unique assignment to be a protector and a guardian, but this helpmeet, this lifesaver, has this responsibility to actually do something for him that's vital. She's going to protect the inner workings of his soul and heart in a way that's unique and necessary. Now, the reason this is so important is because when we try to equate equality with sameness, like we, we are just so far off base, just based on any form of reality, especially biblical reality. Equality does not mean sameness. And what we have in this text is a reveling in equality, but with distinction, with differences, that God creates them to have corresponding strengths and weaknesses and relationship that actually makes it more beautiful to be a man and more beautiful to be a woman. Amy Misra writes in a Huffington Post blog, I think she nails it. She says, the whole, this whole bringing up your daughters the way that you would bring up your son's business is nonsense. When do we decide that there is one ideal prototype of being a human and it's male? Like, think about that for a second. When do we decide that there's one ideal prototype and it's male and therefore to be a fulfilled, actualized feminine woman, you have to shed all that's feminine and become more like that which is male. See, what scripture would say is, look, it's not trite, stereotypical differences. It's not like to be a real woman, you have to like pink and you have to wear perfume and you're not allowed to play outside and to be a real man, you drink beer and you drive a truck and you kill animals and you eat the meat. Like that's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. People are different and they're unique, but there's something about your essence, ladies. There's something about the core essence of femininity that the world needs desperately that you're not to shed and reject to try to become more male. And especially in a culture that defines the ways in which you should be more male as usually the sinful tendencies of men that don't really love and follow Jesus, like domineering, like worshiping of career, 
like being willing to sacrifice relationship and health and depth of soul for more money. Like those are parts of masculinity that don't even reflect true masculinity. They just reflect the fall. So here's what I'm saying. Like she is this help me and that's really beautiful. And that leads us to the fifth thing quickly. She's also called to be a life giver. And I just want to say real fast, like it's not that she's a life giver just biologically with children, although that is part of it for a lot of ladies, It's that she's called to be a life giver in a lot of unique ways. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse 20. Then man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Here's, I think what's happening here. I think her name Eve, which reflects life giver and this title that she's given, the mother of all the living, this gives you a glimpse into some of the unique callings of God on women. And it includes biological life-giving. Like there's something miraculous and splendid in the fact that a woman carries life in her womb and stewards that life in her womb for nine months. That's holy and that's breathtaking. And that's gonna be one of the things we'll talk about throughout this series. Like we wanna talk about that. We wanna value that. But that's not the only way that she's a life-giver. In fact, some of the most life-giving women in scripture never had children. Some of the most life-giving women in scripture were were barren. Some of the most life-giving women in scripture were single. And so we can't reduce this just to biology. We have to recognize that there's a kind of nurturing that a mother does for her baby, for her family, that actually all women are called to bring into the world that we live in. This life-giving is biological, but it's also, think about these, it's spiritual, Like there's something that you bring ladies as a woman of God into barren landscapes full of death and despair and isolation that brings spiritual life when you're walking by the grace of God. It's relational. It's cultural. Like if you just look at human anthropology, like you just study human anthropology for a little bit, here's what you're gonna find again and again. One of the most beautiful common grace gifts of God is womanhood. And, and here's what's amazing. Like God restrains evil through his common grace and common grace just means the ways in which God gifts humanity, both non-believers and believers. So like medicine is common grace from the Lord Jesus. Um, anytime culture has beautiful art and beautiful music, even written by people that don't know and worship the living God, that's an example of common grace. One of the common grace things that God uses to restrain evil in this world is the way in which the whole world would look like the Lord of the flies if it wasn't for women. Like, and I'm being dead serious. Go back, read the book or watch the movie. It's it's not just an example of the depravity of humanity, although that's part of it. It's also an example of what happens when feminine strength is not brought into culture. We destroy each other. We devour each other. We eat each other up. We compete to the point of dominance. We try to take what's not ours. We oppress other people groups. There's something about the essence of womanhood that helps restrain that kind of evil and brings life into culture and life into society. Glenn Stanton put it like this. He says, woman is the most powerful living force on the globe. She creates, shapes, and sustains human civilization. The first step in weakening her power is to convince her that she must overcome her femininity. This, ironically, is precisely what the most vocal strains of feminism had advocated. Yes, women should have equality in the workplace, in politics, in the public square. 
but to, rend- but to render her more like a man in order to accomplish this and to judge her womanliness a hindrance to her ascendancy is to get things exactly backwards. It is to treat her as much less than what she is. The point being, there's something about being a woman and I don't have all of the nuances even figured out, but in the Old and the New Testament, there's something about being a woman that is actually like a means through which God brings creative, nurturing, beauty, and life into this world. That's a beautiful thing and it's a valuable thing. Now, let's stop here because we have to do two more. And the two more that we have to close with are the most important of everything I've said. And the two more get into the bad news and the good news. Because as we're talking about, you're an image bearer, right? You're a relational being. You're a helpmeet, not in a weird second-class citizen sense, but in a life-saving sense. You're a life giver. Like, we're talking about that, and there's a disconnect from those words to the daily experience of our lives, correct? It doesn't feel like that in my life, if you would be honest. It feels like my life is chaotic and sometimes empty and sometimes... It feels like I'm just running on a treadmill to try to make things work and my soul feels disconnected from what you're talking about. Well, let's diagnose that. The sixth thing that you gotta know, ladies, is that woman is a sinner. Now, remember, we're focusing on ladies today, not men. I could equally say men are sinners. But you're not only all those things we just mentioned because of Genesis 3, ladies, you are sinful, You're sinful to your core, and even though you're still an image bearer of God, that image has been marred by our rebellion. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you must not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her, not off doing a quiet time, he was with her. And he ate. Verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Before we go any further, look at what happens in this tragic moment. This is not just theological, this is also anthropological. This explains why the world is how it is. Here's what happens. This enemy of God, an enemy of humanity known as Satan comes to tempt her and here's what he whispers in her ear. God's holding out on you. Can you really trust him? Like he's given you this one restriction. He said, this one boundary that I'm gonna put on your life is for your joy and blessing. It's to protect your life. And I'm gonna give you all of these yeses and this one no. And I need you to trust me knowing that I'm God and you're not. And you're already like me in all the ways that are appropriate for a human being to be like me. And the enemy whispers in her ear, you can't trust him. 
You gotta make life work on your own. The good life is not in him as an image bearer connected to him and connected to mankind. The good life is found in finding your own path towards wisdom and you really need to be more like God even in the ways that he would say you can't be like God. So she believes the lie of the serpent. She gives the fruit to her husband and here's what happens. Her relationship with God is fractured. Death comes in. Her identity gets marred. Like instead of just reflecting God's glory, she's like a prism, but now the prism is broken and you can still sort of sweep it up and you can see glimpses of God in humanity, both male and female, but it's obscured now, man. It's busted and it's broken and it's hemorrhaging. And the identity that she has as this image bearer being lost leads to the lost glory that her and Adam experience. They were clothed with the glory of God. C.S. Lewis is right. You've never talked to an ordinary person. Like you just haven't. Civilization, that's ordinary. Cultures, human beings are immortal. But it's hard to know that because we look at each other and you don't see immediately the radiance of God shining out of us. These two people, you could have just seen it with the naked eye. You could have seen God's light and God's life and God's beauty. Like you would be tempted to worship this couple if you saw them. And they sin against God and they lose that clothing. And all of a sudden they realize, oh man, we're, we're naked and we feel shame for the first time. And this leads towards God pronouncing the result of their sin in the form of a curse. Look at verse 16. These are controversial words that we badly need to understand. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. What is happening here? Well, as a result of sin, a lot of things happen. Her relationship with God gets busted up, so it's hard to know who she actually is and live out of that essence. But also, also, the ability she has as a life bringer becomes difficult and dangerous. Instead of always bringing forth life, there's going to be pain and chaos and death often. And that's not just biological, that's across the board. Like, it's really going to be painful and dangerous to bring forth life into culture. It's going to be hard. And not only that, he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. What the heck does that mean? means three things at least. Her desire for her husband in one sense means because of sin, human beings have an identity crisis. And in particular, men have their unique bends and identity that are usually related to work, right? God's gonna curse Adam as it relates to the field, to his outside job. Most women, I'm not gonna say all women, But most women experience the result of sin as this identity crisis in which many of them try to lock onto or latch onto a guy as the answer for the deepest longings of their soul. So when he says your desire will be be for your husband, one of the things that that means is you're going to think that a guy's going to fix you, a guy's going to solve you, a guy's going to satisfy you, a guy's going to be your answer, he'll be your savior, the right guy, the right family, that's going to fix it. 
Now, I realize for some women in the room, it's not. It's career, and I I get that. There's nuance here because we're all human beings, but here's what we see throughout human history. There have been so many women that have put all their eggs in the you-will-completely basket, And the reality is that form of desire can never be satisfied because the only one that can satisfy an eternal longing is the eternal God. Now, that desire for her husband means something else in addition to that. It also means that instead of her relationship with Adam being equals, in which he has a unique responsibility to steward that relationship as a leader that doesn't dominate or oppress, but lays down his life, there's gonna be many times where her desire for her husband is gonna be a desire to compete with him and usurp him. And God says, he will rule over you. Now, can I just say, that's something that comes into existence. That term, he will rule over you, that comes into existence post-sin. That's the result of what we messed up. That's not God's good design. God's good design is not that man would rule over his wife, it's that he would reflect the headship of Jesus in his leadership, which would be sacrificial and gentle and caring and merciful and life-giving, like Jesus is for the church. But instead, because of this curse right here, reflecting what we did in our sin, you have all kinds of male dominance, you have misogyny entering in, You have forms of passivity where we try to manipulate and control women by just being unavailable physically, emotionally, financially. Everything breaks. So ladies, here's the tragedy of all this. You were made to alongside men, the image bearers of God that actually ruled over creation. And because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, here's what's sad and tragic. Creation actually has dominion over you. Sex enslaves us, money enslaves us, career enslaves us, the dream of family enslaves us, the idol of kids enslaves us, food and drink enslave us. All these things promise completion and satisfaction. And instead of us having dominion over these things under God's authority, these things just keep taking dominion over us and trying to run our lives. Now, there's ways in which that fleshes out in general for men, in general for women. But here's the reality. If you're a human being, you have a massive identity crisis going on inside your soul. Massive identity crisis. We go to people and stuff and things to tell us who we are and give us value and worth. And none of it works. So let me end with the greatest news ever. The woman, seven, is also the seed bearer. She's the seed bearer, which is in some ways a veiled reference to the virgin birth because women don't have seed, men have seed. But here's what's happening. For the first time, the gospel is gonna be preached, the good news of Jesus, and guess who the preacher's gonna be? God. And guess who the recipient's gonna be? The devil. Look what happens here. This is Genesis 3, verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Okay, like this has very little, if anything, to do with snakes. This is a picture, this is symbolism about Satan. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here's what's awesome. The fall 
takes place in a man, Adam, through a woman, Eve. Redemption and recreation of the world takes place in a man, Jesus, through a woman, Mary. And what God's doing in this text is he's actually given hope to her. Here's what he's saying. Everything is broken. Everything is wrong. The glory that you used to be clothed with, you're no longer clothed with. The image that you used to reflect everywhere is now marred. You're now not connected to me relationally. And you and your husband are doing all kinds of wickedness to each other. But let me tell you what's going to happen. One day, I'm going to bring about this promised seed who's going to make everything right. He's going to be the restorer of what broke and he's going to crush the head of the serpent and he's going to fix everything that got busted up in your rebellion and your sin. Jesus shows up born of the Virgin Mary and he restores our shattered relationship with God through his cross and through his resurrection He restores our image as a human being who is relational and he makes it possible for us to know God and know each other. He clothes us with his righteousness so that we don't have to be naked and ashamed. And think about this. One day he so fully glorifies us that if you saw who you're gonna be in 10,000 years as a follower of Jesus, you would be tempted to worship that image because it's gonna reflect radiance. So as we close this thing, St. Augustine said it best, I think, as it relates to our identity. Speaking to God in his book, Confessions, he writes, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in me. Can I, can I close it by just being real practical and honest? Can, can I speak to my sisters? Like, look right here. Ladies, No relationship is going to bring rest to your soul. No perfect family unit is going to bring rest to your soul. No amount of academic success is going to bring rest to your soul. No amount of political influence or economic influence, no amount of material wealth, like none of that stuff is going to get to the restlessness that he felt afar, far from God and that you and I feel in our farness from God. What you're going to do in the world with your gifts and your talent, that matters. And your relationships matter and your roles matter. But all of that stuff flows out of a recreated, restored image that's rooted and grounded in what Jesus did, not what you do. So look at me, listen to this. Because of Jesus, here's how this works. Because of Jesus, the message is not achieve, do, and then you're gonna have worth. It's not compare yourself to other moms and as long as you're better, you're gonna have worth. It's not raise the perfect kids and then you'll have worth. It's not be the most high-powered, fill in the blank, and then you'll have worth. The message of the gospel is because of the work of Jesus, he's gifted you with his righteousness. And here's what's crazy. God the Father looks at you and here's what he says right now. If you're in Christ, here's what he says. You are my beloved daughter. You can rest. You can breathe. You can experience 
a life transformed by his grace and mercy and love. You're safe in him. You're secure in him. You're forgiven in him. You're clean in him. Your beauty is in him. Your future is in him. Your past is in him. And we can just take all of the striving of the world and just Christianize it and call it being a Christian. So your identity now is how successful you are in church or how good you are at facilitating community group or how much you're killing it with homeschool or killing it and being on mission or how great you are at bringing your non-Christian friends at work to church. And we're just translating the same old treadmill and Christianizing it and trying to sanctify it and call it something it's not. It's idolatry. And what the gospel does is he actually, God comes to you in Jesus and he invites you to receive a gift that brings you, think about this, not only back to the place that Eve had, but to an even more beautiful place because Eve had the potential of falling. If you're in Christ, you're secure for all eternity. Clothed, covered, redeemed, valuable, glorious. And here's how it works. What's so crazy and counterintuitive is that your being in Christ, loved, accepted, redeemed, is what invites you to your doing in Christ. Figuring out career and relationships and singleness and marriage and parenting, what you should do in college, like all that's important, but all that flows out of what Jesus has already done that you don't contribute to, you receive it and you learn to rest in it and you learn to experience it through the Holy Spirit so that you actually can cease striving. So as we close this today, like we're gonna talk next week about Esther. It's a crazy, crazy story. It's like sex and intrigue. It's violent sex and rock and roll all over that book. Um, we're, We're gonna talk about Ruth, we're going to talk about Lydia. Like, we're going to talk about all these different ladies. And what's so crazy is we're calling this series Heroin, Feminine Strength the World Needs. And it's really a play on words because the feminine strength and the heroics that the world needs actually find their source in Jesus as the hero. The kind of mom you want to be, the kind of whatever you want to be, like, You don't start by pursuing that. You start by recognizing Jesus is the hero of your story and you rest in a gift. And then, you know what happens? You'll have something to offer the world. 